Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. Growth stocks have been on a roller coaster ride, soaring during the pandemic, only to plunge as interest rates climbed. Today, we look at two prime examples of the growth stock phenomenon Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust and Cathy Wood's ARC K. I want to know how the two funds differ and whether they are set for a resurgence. And in today's dumb question of the week, what is the difference between a closed and open-ended fund? Okay, let's get into it. So this week, we're going to talk about two funds, Scottish Mortgage and ARC. If you've listened to us a lot, you'll probably heard us mention these funds a fair amount. And weirdly, they're pretty similar. But Romin, you have a bit of a love-hate relationship. So you kind of love Scottish Mortgage in a way and have bought it, but you are a bit less keen on ARC, would it be fair to say? Kathy Wood tends to end up as the butt of a lot of your jokes. Yeah, I mean, she does have a similar approach to investing. I mean, it's very much about finding disruptive companies, very much tilted towards the tech sector. And that's true of Scottish Mortgage as well. But there are huge differences between the two that we'll dig into. I just think that really, when you have one of these active funds, it's really down to the manager and also the way the fund is run. And although it's quite boring, governance. It is quite boring. So let's not kick off with that. (laughs) So let's kick off with a disclaimer then, which is also boring. When did you buy Scottish Mortgage and how much of it? Yeah, so I bought it at the very end of October 2022. Now, this was after the huge surge, the unbelievable surge and the subsequent crash. Not quite after all of the crash, unfortunately, because it is down a bit. It's pretty close to the bottom, though, isn't it? October 2022, of the broad market, at least. Yeah, I mean, it's down about 7% as we record this relative to the point at which I bought. But still, you know, I think when I see that kind of discount on a pretty good fund, I just think, well, that's a good buying opportunity. When you say you saw a discount, do you mean discount to NAV or do you just mean it crashed a lot? So the way I think about these things, when you look at the discount of a, of a closed-ended fund, the idea is that if you add up the value of all the stuff in the fund, that's its net asset value. Now, sometimes that's difficult to calculate because some of these stocks are unlisted. I mean, how much is SpaceX worth? Because it doesn't trade on an exchange on a daily basis, you don't really know how much it's worth. So they really just have to have a stab at its true value. But if you look at that NAV for Scottish Mortgage, it's trading at a big discount to that net asset value. So if you believe their valuation, then you're buying something for a lower price than the stuff in the fund. So you're getting a bargain is what you mean. So is it fair to say you bought them because you kind of like their investment style and you believe in their managers and you thought, hmm, it's looking cheap relative to what they hold in the fund? Exactly. And also one thing to stress is that this is in my fund portfolio. This is not in my core, which makes up the vast majority of my pension and my my life savings. So this makes up 10% of my total investments. And this Scottish mortgage investment is quite small, even in that bucket. So it's not a huge allocation. I just love it. I just love the ideas behind it. And if you read the annual report from Scottish mortgage, it just pushes all of my nerdy buttons because <laughs> right. you know, it's, it's, got, it's got things like companies which sequence an entire genome in a day or companies which, like SpaceX, have revolutionised the ability to very cheaply launch things into space, but also are setting the stage for getting to Mars. You know, that's now on the cards because of SpaceX. Yeah, so it's your sci-fi tilt embodied in a way. Yeah, 
So yeah, you've got to be in on it. I mean, when you look at both Scottish Mortgage and ARC, you keep seeing words like growth, disruption, innovation, transformation. It's those kind of stocks which are meant to displace the existing titans of industry. And any trend that's in society, they try to get ahead of it. So for example, things like online shopping in China. And one of the things which they bought was Alibaba when it was still unlisted. They've now cut back on their Chinese exposure. But every trend that you could possibly imagine, they're trying to get ahead of it and find the single best company that embodies that trend. And that's a very similar thing to what Kathy Wood says about her investment strategy, is it not? Yeah, if you read her regular investment updates, they're very similar. I think some of the differences are that, firstly, Scottish Mortgage buys unlisted stocks. So I think about 30% of its portfolio is unlisted stocks. Now, these aren't traded on an exchange. Sometimes they'll just be a complete disaster. Sometimes they'll do well. You know, they've had incredible successes with some of them. So, for example, Tesla, they bought when it was still unlisted. And obviously, that's been a huge success so far. Oh, yeah, an enormous success. I mean, Kathy Wood's ARK Fund is heavily into Tesla as well. But obviously, they can only buy stocks once they're publicly listed, just because of the nature of the fund as an ETF. And of course, the other big difference is that you can't have leverage with Kathy Wood's funds because it's a regular ETF, whereas Bailey Gifford is an investment trust, so they can borrow in the bond market or as a bank loan and use that to lever up their returns, which is one of the things that they do. So even if they just track the market, they're going to outperform because of the leverage. Yeah, so those are some of the differences, isn't it? It's the kind of structure behind the funds. I guess a similarity, as well as their investment strategies, they both have really high active shares, so over 90% in both instances. Because if you're going to buy an active fund, what you want is someone who has bold ideas and really goes into those bold ideas and does them in size. You don't want someone who's going to hug a benchmark and essentially just say, look, here's the S&P 500, but we're going to have 10% more tech because we think that's going to outperform and we'll have 10% less utilities because we want a kind of active tilt. That's not what you want. These definitely aren't that, are they? (laughs) They really are backing themselves. (laughs) And that's what active share means. It means kind of how much do you differ from the benchmark? I mean, there's a question of what the benchmark should be. I think in the case of Scottish Mortgage, it would be something like a global tech index. Now, that's not the NASDAQ because it is global. So it is sometimes difficult to actually find an index which is appropriate for a fund. Yeah, for comparison reasons. But neither of these, Scottish Mortgage nor ARC, actually is benchmarked in that way. They do kind of define their return in comparison to the FTSE All World Index. So I know Scottish Mortgage says their aim is to achieve a greater return than the FTSE All World over a five-year rolling period or longer. Yeah. And and one of the things that's very clear when you're looking at one of these funds is it has a huge style tilt. What do I mean by that? Well, if you've got lots of growth stocks, then you've got a tilt towards growth. If you've got a tilt to value stocks, you've got a tilt towards value. So you can also buy funds which have these tilts, but which are passively managed. As the YouTube comments would say, well done, Captain Obvious. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't they say that to you the other day? They did. Thank you very much for that comment. I like being Captain Obvious. I think that's good. I don't know what that makes me. Lieutenant Obvious, I think. (laughs) But look, I think understanding those tilts is really important because if there is a passive fund that does something similar, well, you know, maybe you should think about buying that. For example... And we'll, we'll add another fund here, which is the Terry Smith Global Equity Fund. 
Now, that has a very similar return to a global quality fund. So if you can find such a fund which has a similar investment ethos and has better returns in the case of the quality fund, then you'd go for the passive alternative probably. Yeah, so if you can find a fund that has an algorithm that does cheaply what the active manager is doing expensively, then, you know, your quid's in. So it's kind of like fee arbitrage. Is there a fund that does it more cheaply? Then I'll just buy that. But in these cases, because their active share is so huge, and also because they have such interesting and innovative approaches to research with very bold ideas, I think it would be very difficult to replicate that using some kind of passive benchmark or anything which you could call passive. So if you look at the tilts of Scottish mortgage at the end of last year, well, firstly, on a geographic basis, their US exposure is around 48%, which is underweight slightly compared to the broad market. And if you look at ARK, that's 96% North America. Right. So that is a difference then between the two funds, that Scottish mortgage is quite a bit more global. Well, yeah. I mean, essentially, ARK is a US fund with a very small weighting abroad. They used to have a bit more Chinese stocks, I think, but now they've cut those as well. I mean, you kind of had to when Chinese tech was getting so battered, right? Yeah. <laughs> you couldn't hold them in good faith. <laughs> There's always the worry that they're going to do what Russia did. If they invade Taiwan, then it's going to become like a kind of Russian scenario where the stocks would become uninvestable pretty much overnight. Yeah, and there was always that delisting risk hanging over it, which has kind of been resolved now. And if you look at the sectors that they're into, So they both have a big tilt towards healthcare. So it makes up almost 30%, I think, of Scottish mortgage. And if we look at ARC K sector exposure, it has a huge overweight in healthcare, consumer cyclicals and tech. No surprises there. And then it's underweight all of the defensive and boring old industries like energy and basic materials. Yeah, I mean, Cathy Wood is very outspoken, isn't she, about how she dislikes index funds and thinks they're kind of focused on yesterday's winners. And she even said, and I quote, in my view, history will deem the accelerated shift towards passive funds during the last 20 years as a massive misallocation of capital. Now, it's bold to be talking about a misallocation of capital when you've just had such an enormous bubble and pop in your fund. But look, this is one of the reasons why I think she's great. She doesn't change her story, even though she's had this catastrophic fall in her fund, you know, meteoric rise, catastrophic fall. She's completely unchanged. And that's what you want. If you buy Kathy Wood's funds, you don't want her to change overnight. You want that Kathy Wood mojo, even if it seems to have faded. Definitely. I guess that's the point with both of these funds in a way. They're super active, as we said, over 90% active share. You really are taking a leap of faith alongside the active manager, aren't you? And in the case of Scottish Mortgage, what is interesting is that the guy who'd run the fund for a long time, James Anderson, He actually retired last year, I believe. Right, kind of at the peak, right? Great timing. So do you still believe in Scottish mortgage post James Anderson? Well, they always talk about a deep bench. So, you know, if you've got a fund which is actively managed, this is the risk. You know, the manager disappears, they retire, they fall under a bus, unfortunately, sometimes. In Russia, they fall out of a window. That's right. But what you really want is a succession plan and some faith that the person who takes over has still got the same mojo. And mojo is a difficult thing to quantify. You know, how much of the decisions which have been really successful in the past have been due to manager A or manager B? You say mojo, we mean alpha, right? Well, it's a non-technical word, I've got to admit. Yeah, but (laughs) mojo is alpha. It's how much you outperform markets. I mean, that's why you're paying them, right? 
the secret sauce, right? That they can look at a stock and kind of predict the future for it. They can identify where the market's got it wrong. But even if they have a hit rate, which is, you know, 52%, that would be pretty good. A 52% hit rate would be amazing for these because the upside is so huge, right? I would say you only need like, what, like one in 10 to be a Tesla and it pays for all the bad ones you do. So in a sense, Scottish Mortgage is a little bit like a venture capital company with that 30% of the trust, which you can invest into these early stage companies. So the person who's taken over the fund from James Anderson is Tom Slater. And what he does is actually meet the managers of these small private companies before they list. And he tries to gauge whether they've got promise or whether they haven't. And one of their spectacular successes was Alibaba. So let's go through some of the companies in which they've invested, private companies which were unlisted. So starting in 2012, they had Alibaba. That was a big success. Then there was some not great successes like HelloFresh. That's a meal delivery company, isn't it? Which was a failure, I believe. I had a lot of those flyers come through my door and not once did I think about signing up. (laughs) (laughs) But they've also got things like Ant Group, which obviously didn't turn out well. Epic Games, Northvolt, Blockchain.com. So you can see the kind of things they're going for. Some kind of new trend in society. They try to get ahead of it, find the best company that monetizes it. So Northvolt, for example, provides batteries for Europe for all of the EV trend where people are driving more electric cars. And then if they're successful, if they find some of these unicorns, then the upside could be absolutely huge. These are towards the more lottery ticket style investments though, aren't they? But this is exactly why I wouldn't have this as my core, because I think they will probably find at least one lottery ticket that pays out amongst all of the junk, but they're going to have a lot of failures. But this is a big reason why you like them, isn't it? That they have a chance of finding these unlisted stocks, which you can't easily access otherwise. Yeah. And the trends, you know, I love the trends. So if I read the document, it kind of fills me with that kind of buzzy glow that we are entering a kind of Star Trek age rather than some kind of dystopia run by nutters. Aren't you always saying like, don't buy into the narratives? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) This is the point of the fun portfolio that... You know, I have to constantly get burnt again and again and again just to remind me how incompetent I am at these kind of tactical trades, but also taking my own advice. But the thing is, the unlisted securities make up at most 30% of Scottish mortgage rights. So aren't you buying a Happy Meal and all the food, the burgers, the fries, and all you really want is that little plastic toy? (laughs) But as a retail investor, I can't buy the toy. I can't buy unlisted stocks. Well, you could presumably buy some sort of private equity fund somehow. But look, even the unlisted stuff is only a small part of it. So there's a lot of stuff which isn't unlisted, which is just a regular stock like ASML, the company which is underlying the technology behind lithography. But isn't the point that what you said earlier, if you were just interested in those public stocks, you could effectively get that same exposure much cheaper? Yeah, you could go for a kind of growthy, techie, passive fund. And then try and add a little bit of private equity on top. Yeah, or you could buy NASDAQ, or you could buy a very strong growth tilt passive fund. They certainly exist, and you can buy them relatively cheaply. I think the other point with the unlisted stocks in Scottish Mortgage is that they can invest up to 30% of the fund in unlisted stocks, and they are right at that cap now. So I believe at the end of February, it was 29.9%. So you might think, oh, well, does that matter? They've just done all they can do at the moment. But maybe it does matter because now if attractive opportunities come up, 
in new companies or companies they've already invested in who are looking to raise more capital, they can't easily participate in that, or at least they'd have to sell some of their other private stocks, which have all taken a pretty big write down over the last year. So I think they're down about 45% on their valuations. So if markets sell off further, particularly in the kind of stocks which Scottish mortgage buys with a growth tilt, essentially this could trigger a fire sale where it's forced to sell the liquid stuff. So that would be the stuff which is listed on a stock exchange. And of course, that would reduce the value of that proportion of the fund, and then it would breach its 30% limit. Now, they have come out and said that they could actually change that limit if need be. Some of it's also due to the gearing limit. So as we said, they can borrow to invest. But again, there's a cap on that. And their gearing at the moment, their leverage, is at a 10-year high of around 17% of the assets, which doesn't sound huge, but they haven't got much more runway before they'd have to start shifting the deck chairs around. (laughs) But they also have to pay for that. They have to pay for the debt. And there was an interesting article in Morningstar about the actual cost of Scottish mortgage. One of the reasons why I like them is they cut the active management fee. So as the fund grew bigger and bigger, they reduced the fee, which is great. I mean, you don't often see that for an actively managed fund. You certainly haven't seen it with ARC K. No, so I think Scottish Mortgage's ongoing fee is around 0.32%, and ARC, I believe, is more than double at 0.75%. That is a big difference. And there's no sign that ARC's going to cut its fee, even though it's done so badly. There's no sense of apology with ARC K. You know, Cathy seems to say that, oh no, markets are wrong. You know, growth is just ridiculously undervalued now. Yeah, it's interesting her kind of hurdle rate she looks for on the company she invests in. So she says they're looking for companies whose five-year return will exceed 15% compounded on an annual basis, which is a massive return, isn't it? They're targeting on a company-by-company basis. And even harder, right, once you've had such a big sell-off over the last two years. And I think that's one of the differences between ARC-K and Scottish Mortgage, which is that Scottish Mortgage does have a layer of governance above the fund manager. And that's because it's just a regular company which trades on an exchange. So they can borrow money, they've got a board. And the board actually controls what the fund manager can do, and they can fire the managers if they're no good, which has happened in the past. They're very reluctant to do it, but they can. Hasn't happened at Scottish Mortgage, but at other investment companies, right? Oh, yeah. So, for example, when Woodford, unfortunately, went off the rails, they fired him. You know, they just replaced him. A as bit late, wasn't it? <laughs> Too late, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. They could have done it sooner. But in the case of Arc K, Cathy can do whatever she wants. She essentially runs a shop with some very junior people that may push back on her ideas, but might not. Whereas if you look at something like Scottish Mortgage, it's part of Bailey Gifford, which is a very well-respected investment company based in Scotland. But they have an entire research team whose research they can draw on and also this extra layer of governance because it's an investment trust. So there's a big difference there. Yeah, I had a big hunch you'd put it into your fund portfolio. One, because it started to go down in price still, but also because the reason you bought it and this good governance somehow looked shaky (laughs) quite shortly after you bought it. Because there was a boardroom bust-up, as it always gets referred to in the media, at Scottish Mortgage, wasn't there, recently? And what that's resulted in is that the non-exec who actually complained that Scottish Mortgage had too many private investments, various other complaints as well, he left. I think he was fired. It's not absolutely clear. But whatever happened, he's no longer on the board. And the chair of the board, Fiona McBain, has also retired. So there was a bust up. It was a very public bust up, which you don't often get. 
But I think one way of looking at it is that it shows that governance worked. There was a complaint about what was going on, about buying back shares in order to pump up the share price closer to NAV. You know, all of this stuff should concern somebody. There should be somebody sitting within the company operating in the interest of the shareholders. And that's what you get with Scottish Mortgage. So I think the bust-up is actually a sign that things were working. I think that's a fair enough view. But are you not slightly concerned as an owner of Scottish Mortgage that there might be some validity to these complaints from Amar Bide, who is the non-exec director who left the board? So here's a quote. He says, In my opinion, they do not have the capabilities and governance clout to be able to monitor the illiquid investments on which there is little audited information in the public sphere. The fact that you've pulled it off for the last 10 years has been due to an utterly aberrant period in financial history. Don't delude yourself that you can keep playing this game. So that's a pretty blockbuster quote he gave to the FT there. And Burns's retort to that, which is a very good one, I think, is that these unlisted stocks are our best ideas. This is not asset allocation. So he talks about the actual funds which they're investing in. And he says that things like SpaceX, Northvolt, Retail website operator Brandtech, ByteDance, which obviously owns TikTok, and US payments processor Stripe. Those are their best ideas. And what Slater said was that they're just looking for the best growth businesses, whether they're private or trade on public stock markets, which I think is the right approach. So I think the criticism basically was that they're playing the private equity game and maybe they're not as smart as the private equity companies. Well, I'd kind of push back on that because I don't think the private equity companies are that smart. <laughs> <laughs> so you're saying it's in the land of the blind, one eye is fine. But I think there's a really big difference between something like Slater's Fund and Woodford, which is another comparison that people made. Because Neil Woodford was an incredibly successful fund manager in the UK. And he bought lots of unlisted stocks, very small ones, and essentially had to gate them when there was a big crash in some of the stocks and he couldn't sell them quickly enough. Yeah, I guess the difference here is the structure of Scottish mortgage means they probably don't have to engage in a fire sale despite these stocks being down in value unless they get into trouble because of some sort of cap in the fund like the gearing ratio. That's right. And that's the beauty of a closed-ended fund. And also the actual investments are much bigger than the ones that Woodford made. So for example, Bailey Gifford generally buys businesses which are global, even though they're unlisted, which are worth around 10 billion on average. Now, if you compare that with Woodford, usually there were small UK companies, growth companies, which had an average market cap of around 200 million pounds. Yes, they're not directly comparable, but it's definitely true that Scottish Mortgage and ARC have been in a huge drawdown since early, mid-2021. So, for example, one of the big holdings of Scottish Mortgage is Moderna, and that's fallen by about two-thirds since the top of the market in 2021. But what Scottish Mortgage has done is continue to add to the position, and it's actually now the top holding. So it's around 6.9% of assets at the end of February. So it's pretty unapologetic about holding that. It still believes in the company. But what's interesting, I find, is that all of that pandemic outperformance has basically gone away now. So Scottish Mortgage is basically back to where it was pre-pandemic and ARC is actually below where it was before the pandemic. So if we take a point in time, which is, say, October 2021, as the peak of the euphoria, Scottish Mortgage is down by about 50%, whereas ARC is down by about 70 Now, clearly, that's a win in my book by Scottish Mortgage, but still not very good if you started to buy at the very top of the market. 
But this is why I bought after the crash, of course, which is I was very cognizant to the fact that many of these companies were egregiously overvalued. So I was looking for a point at which Scottish mortgage was just hated by everybody. Nobody would even consider buying them. And I think I picked that point pretty well. Yeah, you were looking for a time when your love of their narrative overpowered your love of value. (laughs) (laughs) That's fair, yeah. And look, I can kind of scratch my sci-fi itch at a lower price. And it's always about what you pay. It's not necessarily about what you buy, it's what you pay for it. Yeah, that's what we always forget, isn't it? A great company can become a terrible investment if you pay too much. And a really bad company can actually be a pretty good investment if you get it when it's below its value. So the key point is I still believe in the narrative of Scottish mortgage, but I now also believe in the price that they're paying for those stocks and that I'm indirectly paying by buying their fund. And it's true that Scottish mortgage has outperformed ARC over the last five years. So Scottish mortgage is up a total of around 55% and ARC is up only around 5% over the last five years. But if you look at it year to date this year, Scottish mortgage is below where it was at the start of the year and ARC is up over 30%. So are we starting to see a turnaround here and ARC closing the gap on Scottish mortgage? Well, it is a high beta fund. In other words, it seems to have more leverage to the overall market moves. So what you would expect is if growth does bounce back, ARK would outperform Scottish Mortgage. Which is weird when Scottish Mortgage is the fund with gearing. It's the levered fund. (laughs) (laughs) But I don't think it's that. I think it's this boardroom thing has slightly worried people about Scottish Mortgage. And in fact, what it's making me think is maybe I should buy a bit more now that it's got this kind of discount. Such a contrarian. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's got more discount now. The board's still there. That's the important thing about a board. There's continuity there as well. And if anything, the governance is going to be a hell of a lot better now after the bust up than it was before. Yeah, it's going to be by the book now. (laughs) (laughs) I just feel sorry for any of these board members that apply for the job now because there's just going to be so much scrutiny of their background. What do you think of the job of a board member, though? Like, what are they actually there to do? Do they have a lot of influence? Well, one of my friends is a board member for a fairly big fund and everyone describes him politely as a pain in the arse because that's (laughs) his job. Professional pain in the arse. Yeah. He has to ask questions and those have to be really deep questions which get to the heart of the problems at the fund. So you've got to be like a grain of sand in the oyster in order to create the kind of alpha pearl, if you like. Because if you're not there to create a little bit of friction and a bit of pushback. If the manager feels they can do whatever the hell they want, then you're not doing your job. They should always feel as if their job's on the line, and every interaction with you is a job interview. Because if the board can't fire the manager, they shouldn't be there in the first place. So an ideal board member is a pain in the arse, this is what you're saying? A collegiate pain in the arse. Do you think companies are missing a trick, Roman, by not getting you on the board? Yes. (laughs) And I should say, I am available if people are interested. It's a lucrative gig, isn't it, if you can get it? Well, it can be, but I think there are responsibilities, both to your kind of company, but also to the shareholders. That's your job. And if you fail to do that, then it's your problem. You failed those people and destroyed a lot of wealth by your ineptitude and your inaction. Yeah, but I do agree with you that Scottish Mortgage probably has better governance than ARC. And yeah, it probably is a good thing that we saw it all blow up publicly over what looks to me a relatively minor complaint. If that's the worst thing that's going on there, 
things aren't too bad, probably. Like, it's a very English boardroom bust up, isn't it? It's like, oh, you've bought back a bit too many of our shares. Are you sure you're doing your due diligence right? It's not, it's not Enron, is it? No, no. And the thing is, you do need good governance of Scottish Mortgage because let's not forget, it is the largest investment trust in the UK. So it's almost 400 investment trusts and it's the biggest one. It's in the FTSE 100, so we probably all own a little bit of it and should want it to do well. It is a monster. A lot smaller than it was, but still a monster. And to wrap it up on these two funds, I guess the question as an investor, if I'm looking at them and thinking, is it a good time to buy in, is we should be asking, what does the future hold, right? For growth stocks and for these companies. So yes, they've sold off a lot, but could it get worse? So for example, in the dot-com bubble bursting in 2000, there were eight separate instances where the markets rallied by 15% or more. So if you think about that, that means there were eight bear market rallies and the S&P did not find a bottom until two years later. So it's not a given that we're at the bottom now, is it? Certainly not. And I think if we do get one fallout of this banking crisis that's kind of working its way around the world now, one of the things is that growth stocks are going to suffer because if they do have bank loans, those are going to be more expensive and the cost of capital will increase for growth stocks. And that's never good because if you're growing strongly, then you have to borrow in order to invest and that'll essentially put a break on your ability to expand. So I think the overall effect of tightening monetary policy, but also a higher cost of capital, is going to disproportionately affect growth funds. Plus, there's less risk appetite out there. Previously, VCs were throwing money at anything which was vaguely tech-oriented. Now that money's pretty much dried up. So should these funds not think about altering their investment strategy then, if we're in a new environment of higher interest rates and potentially lower growth? Or should they just stick to what they're supposedly good at? I think changing the fundamental nature of the fund would be a mistake. I think being more selective about the kind of investments they make with less speculative stuff might make sense. Is it not all speculative, though, just by its very nature? Yeah, that's true. I think they should try to focus more on the things which are more likely to pay out. So less of the kind of out of the money call options and more of the kind of bread and butter growth stocks, which are fairly established because those are more likely to succeed. Yeah, but some people say those kind of large cap growth stocks are the most overvalued still. Yeah, but this is kind of what I mean, which is you should pay more attention to the valuations. Because I think I saw an interview with Anderson and Slater before Anderson left, and they were talking about buying growth at an unreasonable price. People always talk about growth at a reasonable price, GARP, as a kind of investment strategy. <laughs> but this is like GURP. I'm never investing in GARP. <laughs> Come on. But this is GURP, growth at an unreasonable price. <laughs> so I think there should be less GURP and more GARP. Now, people always ask me about my fund portfolio, and I always tell them, don't do what I do, because it is a way of essentially me losing money. But if you do want to learn about all the fun ideas in my fund portfolio, then join our membership, because we discuss it quite often. To learn more about that, just go to our website, pensioncraft.com. Okay, today's dumb question of the week is, what is the difference between a closed and an open-ended fund? Well, let's say you're investing in something which is illiquid. In other words, it's very difficult and takes a long time to buy and sell. One example might be commercial property. Another example might be unlisted stocks, as we've already seen. Because the problem is that when money flows out of a fund, if it's an open-ended fund, 
then units of the fund are destroyed. And when that happens, the fund manager has to sell stuff in order to pay people as they walk out of the door. Now, if it's an illiquid investment and there's a crisis, sometimes the fund manager can't sell the stuff fast enough to pay the people as they're leaving. And then the fund has to be gated. In other words, you can't pull out your money, which is awful because you've got a crashing asset class. You can see your fund losing value, but you can't pull out your money. And that is what we saw in the Woodford example, isn't it? And they call it a liquidity mismatch. And Woodford was a prime example, as you say, Michael. So he had bought lots of small, illiquid private companies and lots of them because a lot of people put their money into Woodford's fund and then sentiment turned, people started pulling their money and he had to go through a kind of fire sale and then he couldn't sell them and then he gated the fund and then it's all turned into a big scandal. Exactly. And it's always a painful thing because the investors are the ones who pay the price. Would he have gotten away with it if he was in a closed-ended fund structure? Well, one of his structures was closed-ended. It was an investment trust. And that one actually came out of it kind of okay. Because with a closed-ended fund, the idea is that the pool of capital is fixed. So let's say it's got $100 billion in the fund. If you want to sell your stake in the fund, you have to find someone who's willing to buy it. Or at least the market maker will do that. But the amount of capital in the fund never changes unless they issue more stock or buy back their stock. And Scottish Mortgage is an example, isn't it, of a closed-ended fund. So if I buy some of Scottish Mortgage, the money I'm paying there isn't going in any way to Scottish Mortgage. It's going to someone else who already owns a bit. So if I buy it and you're selling, I'm buying it off you. Now, what can happen is the price falls below the net asset value. And that's exactly what's been happening to Scottish Mortgage. As people are selling their stake, they don't believe in the fund anymore, that's going to push down the price below the NAV. And that's when you get these discounts. And that's when it's a good time to buy if you still believe in the thesis of the fund. Yeah, so that's a big difference, isn't it, between open-ended and closed-ended. With an open-ended fund like Cathy Wood's ARC, the price of the shares is literally equal to what's in the fund, right? Because there's a kind of arbitrage relationship, isn't it? Whereas with a closed-ended, it fluctuates hugely. And that's good if you want very accurate measurements of the stuff that's bought by the fund. But it's also why you probably couldn't have an ETF run with unlisted stocks in it, because the arbitrage wouldn't be easy between the actual stuff in the fund and the actual units of the fund. So it sounds like what we're saying is that closed funds are kind of better, right? Because they're not going to be gated in the same way and there's not this risk of a fire sale. So why isn't everything a closed-ended fund then? What's open-ended got going for it? Well, I think one aspect of it is the liquidity. You can sell it whenever you want. You know exactly what you're going to get and what the price is going to be. Now, usually the costs are lower for an open-ended fund, particularly the passive ones. Now, in the case of ARK-K, not so much, right? That's 0.75. So <laughs> it's a very active fund and it's very expensive. But I think people like ETFs, don't they? Because they can buy and sell them in a second. Yeah, so it's more liquid. Now, I've never been in the case where I couldn't sell an investment trust, but in theory, at least, they're less liquid than something like an ETF, particularly the big ones. And with an ETF, you know intraday what the fund's worth exactly and is priced minute to minute. Whereas with an investment trust, you really don't know. And even if you look at the NAV, you have to kind of trust the fund to do the valuation properly. 
Yeah, it seems to me that these investment trusts and closed-ended funds, they tend to be for the more esoteric and slightly odd investments, don't they? Yeah, illiquid, esoteric, odd, that's a fairly good characterization. But that's their attraction, which is that you can buy slightly off-the-wall assets, which do diversify away from your kind of bread-and-butter stocks, which all tend to rise and fall together. So, for example, if you want to buy infrastructure, which is a common hedge when inflation's high, or at least one which is perceived as a hedge, usually that would be wrapped up as an investment trust because infrastructure is illiquid. And it also allows them to get into things like leverage and gearing, which is much harder to do under the surface, at least in an ETF or an open-ended fund. Yeah, and an investment trust comes with a board. So in that sense, it's got that extra layer of governance, if the board's any good, of course. So if you do buy one of these investment trusts, look at the board. Who are they? Can they push back on the fund manager? Have they got the kind of guts to do it and the kind of clout to do it? If not, then that governance is kind of irrelevant. I mean, an investment trust basically is a company, right? Just a company with a board, like we say with Scottish Mortgage, it's in the FTSE 100, which always seems slightly strange to me that there's this kind of investment company in there, which we all own a bit of, which then owns a bit of all these other companies. It's like Russian dolls, right? Yeah, but the FTSE 250 is similar. There are lots of investment funds in it. In fact, it's one of the biggest sectors. Thank you for joining us for many happy returns. Do send us your questions, no matter how dumb, at the email address mhr at pensioncraft.com. And do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership and investment coaching options. Many Happy Returns is a Pensioncraft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.